0: Is in his life and his first advent, what he, what, why he came, what he said, most importantly, what he did for us at the cross and what you did at the resurrection. We thank you also, Father, that you have explained amazing mysteries in the letters of Paul that are just for the church-age people like us. And we thank you, Father, for the salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you that We are justified by faith and not of the works of the law. We thank you, Father, for the members of the body of Christ that we share our lives with today. We thank you, Father, for the great hope that you've provided us in your word about our future, about our future not only when we're raptured but also in the ages to come. And we thank you for all the blessings that we have now, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And we ask this morning, Father, for you to watch over and take care of your entire church, both in the United States and around the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty, listen, uh, it's been a while since I've said this, but I do want to once again encourage you to be reading the Gospel of John. Okay. Um, It's uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit this morning, but it is a book that is deceptively simple. And yet when you read it again and again, You start to see some things, start to understand some connections and some questions that come out only because you've read it through and and you're looking, comparing different parts of the gospel to other parts. So I do highly encourage you to do that. You know, it's 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 21 chapters, so you can take a little bit at a time, maybe, you know, a couple of chapters a day. But please, if you haven't been doing that, please start to do that again. All right, let's begin. The title of today's message is if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, I'd like you to turn now to the gospel of John, chapter eight, verse thirty one. John, chapter eight, verse thirty one. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth. Which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. In this passage, we see a a section of it. The first part. That is very straightforward. But then, and that's the first two verses, really, verses 31 and 32. From there forward, things get complex. We're going to see why that is. We're going to to see that this is is a characteristic, not only of this particular passage, but of large parts of this gospel. Particularly when Jesus is in dialogue with uh, unbelieving Jews, as we shall see. When I... Prepare for a message I always you know, read the passage many times and I'm always searching for the heartbeat of the passage searching for the meaning of it Well, I did that this week and it occurred to me that there's something about John's writings all of them, but the gospel of John in particular. that's baffled me for a long time One of the things here in the gospel of John is it's this this part of me that I'm part of the message that I'm trying to grasp it uh, Shows up in the amount of repetition there is in this gospel. I, I haven't counted, but there have to be dozens of times when Jesus Christ basically says the same thing, that God is his father and he has sent me. Right. Repetition. You wonder, why is that? It also shows up with terms, this thing that is baffling at times. They're terms that you can't quite get pinned down. You think you understand what they mean. But then you come up to the term in another setting, and then all of a sudden what you thought it meant can't fit what we're now reading. Uh, two of those are the Jews, and we've wrestled with that already. Who are the Jews? Sometimes it does mean the nation of Israel. Other times it seems like it means maybe the people in, 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 the, in, the, in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Other times it seems like it's the leaders. And it's not always clear. You can, you can try to work with the context and understand it but you can't pin it down like this this word always means that similarly with the word disciples it's a very similar thing for example Jesus apostles are called disciples and that's very clear for the most part because Judas is also a disciple and that doesn't fit the mold and then you have disciples that follow him for a while believe in him perhaps for a while and then they, they hear something or see something and that that's it they're gone And so this even this idea of disciple again, you can't really nail it down to exactly what it means. Or like we have this week, where there's a crowd of Jews around Jesus. We've seen this again several times for a bit. You think you know who they are. Then all of a sudden something happens or something is said, and then it changes how you understand who that crowd is. There's a sense in which you examine a set of relationships again and again. A small set, to be sure. Like the relationship between Jesus and his father. The relationship between Jesus and the Jews. Jesus and disciples. John and the Jews. John and disciples. The Jews and Abraham. There are these relationships. And as you move through the gospel, you come upon them again. And as you do the narrative changes so the relationships are there but then the story moves and the story moves into more and more intensity and then you have to say what is that intensity we've already looked at that and we know that the major component of that intensity that builds in the gospel of john is the resistance and the hatred of the jews in quotes now for jesus that gets more intense but then you see you come back around And then this relationship comes back. And sometimes it's totally baffling. You know, for example, in in chapter eight, Jesus once again says he's talking about the father. He's told them several, several times that God is his father. And yet by what they say, they totally don't get it. They totally misunderstand. How many misunderstandings, too, have we seen this in this gospel? Jesus is talking about the spirit. The people think he's talking about just water. Jesus is talking about his body. They think he's talking about normal bread. We've seen that again and again and again. So it's, it's, like, it's like you think about like something that's moving around, right? And then it's, it's also going forward in time. And what happens is it spins faster as, the, as the, say, the truck is going down the highway. See, everything in the Gospel of John is interconnected. We know that. We know that, that, there's, that there's a relationship between the Father and Jesus. We know that there's a relationship between Jesus and the disciples, that in large measure, for example, their coming to believe who He is coincides with their understanding that He's in the Father and the Father's in Him. So there's these interconnections. But if you if you just take one snapshot, you never get the entire picture at one setting. And you ask yourself, why is that? You see, for example, a relationship between Jesus and his disciples, and you see it from one perspective, but you don't see the whole thing and you never actually get all of it in one frame. It seems like you're getting close. And this is particularly true when Jesus is talking to the crowds. It seems like you're on the cusp of putting it all together and then you can't. And you ask yourself, what is going on? There are things that you are in the presence of in this gospel that you can't quite resolve in your head. Finally, I started to realize that maybe we're not supposed to resolve it. Maybe not here. You know, what is the Gospel of John? Essentially, it's the recording of a ministry of a man named Jesus Christ, who we know is God's son and the Messiah over the course of a three-year period. And this Gospel presents things the way they were during that three-year period among the people that Jesus is interacting with, Across those three years. But well, what do we do? Well, what we'd like to do is to take that narrative, to take those episodes between Jesus and the people, and we'd like to pull them out of that, as, extrapolate those things and say it's the same for us in our time. But that's not true. We, we want John to write the gospel the way we would prefer to have him write it, the way that we think. One of the big things that I think is is something that we wish got the gospel of John was more like is a logical order. Not, I mean, like, for example, Paul's writings, they're very logical in order. Right? You can go through them and you can see the argument and how it progresses. That's not really the same at all in the gospel of John. And you ask yourself why that is. For example, we one of the big subjects of the gospel of John is. uh Believing in Christ. Now what we would like. Is to have it all laid out in a logical order. The father calls. The spirit convicts. The gospel is preached. The person believes. The person continues in the word. The person is justified. The person is sanctified. And there's this progression. But we don't. We don't see that. All put together in the gospel of John. We see parts of it. And then particularly in the discussions and the arguments and the conflicts that Jesus has with the Jewish people, we find that there's a resistance to putting it all together. You can't quite resolve it. And we can't. You see, we would like to put things in a logical order, but it simply isn't that way in the Gospel of John. We would like things to be in a straight line. But really, in the Gospel of John, it moves more or less like a circle. I've mentioned this earlier that it's more like a symphony where you have a, something, a theme introduced and then it goes through something where it's changed. Or you look at it from a different perspective. Sometimes you get the minor chords of that symphony and you, you don't understand why there's all this conflict around a subject that seems pretty straightforward. Well, again, it's because John is recording what actually happened between Jesus Christ and these people in in Israel that he was trying to convert, trying to get to follow him at that time in the first century A.D. I'd like you to turn to the, God, the letter of 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1 verse 1. What's excellent about having first John is that We actually get John reflecting on what he recorded in his gospel. We don't get that really. Well, we do get it somewhat with Luke, but he really doesn't reflect on the gospel in the book of Acts as much as he does tell another story. But here we have John coming back, as it were, and and, and sort of commenting on, filling in some of the gaps Putting it together in a way that complements the gospel of John. That's why we're going to briefly look at one passage at the very beginning of first John this morning. First John, chapter one, verse one. What was from the beginning? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What we have heard. What we apostles have actually heard, what we have seen with our eyes. They heard Jesus speak. They saw him. What we have looked at and touched with our hands. In other words, this was a, this was a real flesh and blood person. This was a, an encounter that we apostles had with this person. We know who he is. He's God in the flesh. Grace and truth emanate from his person. But we've heard him. We've seen him. We've looked at him. We've touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us, the apostles. But we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, certainly we have to interpret some of what he's saying, some of the language, but this clearly makes sense. This clearly moves in a direction that we can understand. But why is that? Why is it that Jesus would talk about a subject like salvation or believing or his father in front with the Jews and it wouldn't be like this? It would be interrupted or it would be challenged. Yet here we get John reflecting on what he's already experienced. Because remember, John, when the writer of the Gospel of John is the Apostle John, he was the only one who was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was dying for the sins of the world. It's the same John. He's reflecting back on all of that. Well, what's the difference here? The difference here is that now John is writing to describe what he experienced and he's reaching out to believers in Christ so he can put it all together for them. From the beginning, Jesus Christ is the word of God. We were with him. We heard him. We saw him with our eyes. We, we, we learned about the word of life. Why? Because life itself, it comes from Jesus. And, and we, we, he was with us and we've seen and we've testified and we proclaim to you eternal life. Jesus, the word came. He's the word of life. He came so that we might have eternal life, that that gospel would be proclaimed. And that word was with the father. The thing that Jesus was trying to get across to the Jews here is stated in a very straightforward way. It was manifested to us. In other words, the apostles, we got it. When when Jesus had in chapter six, we saw where he talked about his body and his blood. And it says this most of the disciples weren't walking with him anymore. Now, you scratch your head a little bit. With that one, you're like, well, wait are disciples are followers of Jesus, you know, and so forth. There is students. You know, why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't they be walking with him anymore? In any event, we have those disciples. All right. But then we have this group of disciples called the apostles. And in that very same exchange at the very end of chapter six, Jesus turns to the to the apostles, including John and Peter, and says to them, are you going to leave me too? And then and then Peter, the spokesman, says, where are we going to go you have words of eternal life. We have know, We have seen and come to know that you are the Holy One, the Son of God, the Messiah. And same thing with John. He knows who Jesus is. He said again, this verse 2, this life was manifested. We have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever simply believes in him Will have eternal life. This was with the Father from eternity. This Jesus, the Word and eternal life was manifested to us. He is the light of the world. The light was the life of men. What we've seen and heard, now we proclaim to you. This is in a different context now. It's not Jesus proclaiming or trying to proclaim this to this crowd of Jewish people, which is a very complex and risky situation more and more. It's now John speaking to his his flock as it were we proclaim to you also what that jesus christ is the word of god he's god in the flesh he's bringing eternal life he came from the father we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us so that we may be together as a family all right and indeed our fellowship our family is with the father he is our father we're his adopted children and with his son jesus christ that's what fellowship is Fellowship is being a member of the family. And that's, of course, what Jesus is trying to get through to the people that he's speaking to in chapter eight. He's saying, you know, there's a difference between slaves and sons. You know, and if these sons sets you free, you will be free indeed. OK. These things we write now that, are joy, that our joy is very interesting. You might think these things, John would say, we're writing these things so that your joy would be complete. That certainly makes sense. But no, he is actually saying we're writing so that our joy may be complete. Well, what's that? It just means that as more and more people come to hear the gospel and believe it, the the, uh, the apostles are more and more joyful because that's the whole reason Jesus came. So so that's kind. Of, I wanted to I don't usually do this, but I wanted this morning to kind of walk a little bit through. Well, my my thinking as I was preparing for the message this morning, how was I how, how I was trying to grasp the meaning and I was having a hard time. Until it finally hit me why. OK, let's go back now to the gospel of John, chapter eight. We're going to start in verse 30. One verse before where we we first started this morning, I'd like you to go to John, chapter eight, go back to eight, John, chapter eight and look at verse 30. All right. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Notice Jews and disciples. Remember, I told you those are two words that you can't always pin down in the Gospel of John. We have both of them here. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, here's what I like. Why? Because this makes sense. This is this proceeds from one thing to the next. As a matter of fact, I, I, I concluded that, you know what, let's just stick with these verses to understand the meaning of our passage this morning, because they're all it all moves and it moves in a great direction. People come to believe in Christ. Then he tells them, he encourages them uh, a true disciple of his will continue in his word, abide in his word. When you do that, you will come to know the truth and the truth will make you free. And this all makes sense because Jesus is talking to a group of new Jewish believers. That's what it says in verses 30 and 31, doesn't it? And he spoke these things. Many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So Jesus is talking to a group of new Jewish believers, he says that twice, he says it in verse 30 and verse 31. But then we start to understand as we continue that there's it's not there's not there's more people there than just the Jews that believe in him. And as that starts to unfold, now, all of a sudden, things are anything but simple. For example, look at verse. Oh, I said that. Okay, look at verse. Thirty seven. Look at verse thirty seven. I know now he now when you when you read this the first time, it, it looks like, well, he's talking to the same people. But then you think about it for a minute. Notice what he says about the people he's addressing in verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. You see, everyone who was Jewish uh, counted their ancestry back to Abraham. And they were very proud of that. I know you're Abraham's descendants. In other words, physical descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Wait a minute. He's speaking in verse 30. He says 31. He's speaking to Jews who had believed him. In verse 37. He's telling people that they seek to kill him. And that his word has absolutely no place in you. In, In verse 31. He says continue in my word. Which means they're already in his word. And they should continue. But here in verse 37. My word has no place in you. And you have to ask a question. Wait a minute. No believer in Christ. Wants to kill him. I mean, isn't that sort of obvious, right? No believer. Now, of course, this applies to the times in which Jesus was on earth. Okay, but believers in Christ didn't have it in their hearts to to kill him. Unbelievers wanted to kill him. And every believer in Christ has at least some of his word in them. I mean, at the very least, at the very least, you can't come a believer in Christ if you don't have the gospel. Right. So what does it mean that? When he tells this group that his word has no place in you. It gets worse. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. How can a believer in Christ have the devil as his father? He can't. So clearly, we started with, at one place with one people, and then we we ended up in a really different place with have to be other people there. But it's not written clearly. It doesn't. It's not as if it's easy, and, the, and John says, hey, there was a small group that Jesus talked to first, and then there was this other group that he talked to second. It's not really that simple, you see. He's talking to a whole group and he's discerning. He's discerning that among them are believers and among them are hostile unbelievers. That makes things complex. It's not simple anymore. Once you start to see things like this. Things uh, things turn out to be very different from what they look to be at first. Now You know what happens with theologians and commentators and pastors? In we start to do what we call what I call mental gymnastics with this. You know, and I know this. Not only do I do it myself, but remember, I, I have to read commentators, all right, commentaries. And I just watch them. And what happens is, by the way, is that I, as a pastor studying, you want to be open to what you can learn from comment, commentaries. But what happens is you start to dive into and be participating in the same mental gymnastics they're participating in. Um, now, about often you find something that you can um, run with with that, but not this time. This time I made no progress by trying to do the things they were trying to do, the analytical things and making distinctions and so forth. So the so the first question is maybe the second group or maybe the, maybe none of them are believers at all. Maybe the, there's a first group in verse 30 that are genuine believers and maybe it's a different group in verse 31 that those aren't those are fake believers. Maybe the word Jews in verse 31 indicates that those that's a totally different group and it's leaders of the Jewish people. And maybe they went along with what he said until he said something that they didn't like. When you go through those kind of mental gymnastics, however, this is what we're doing. What we're doing is, is we're taking categories that are in our head now. And and it's good that we have categories in our head. we, we, We have our understanding of who a believer is and what's happened to him. We have our understanding of how we would like to define a disciple and so forth. But we superimpose those categories onto a story, a narrative. It's always a tricky thing to do because a narrative is, as it were, full-blooded in the sense that you have real people, real points in their life. People aren't simple. You know, I mean, I mean, if I mean, e- even if I categorize all of us as believers, that's certainly true. But we're not all the same. We're at different points in our spiritual walk. We have different spiritual gifts. So when you get into flesh and blood people, then all of a sudden those categories, you have to step back and say, let me first, just let the story tell itself to me, all right? So um, this is always a problem. I'll tell you, it's a problem for two reasons when we talk about the gospels. When we take categories that we're familiar with about who it means to be a Christian, And then we try to superimpose them on a narrative of events that, hey, occurred in the first century A.D. They occurred when Jesus was walking the earth. They occurred before he died on the cross, before he was raised from the dead. I'll submit to you that the categories and the teachings that are for the church, okay, are, you put those aside and apply them to the church. Don't automatically take those categories and apply them to the Jews in Jesus' day. That's a mistake. That's number one. But number two is that the, the, there's, a, there's a factor here. There's a, there's a power here that makes it really difficult for even Jesus to get through to them and, as it were, complete his thoughts before they get interrupted. And of course, we're going to see what that is, has to do with the people he's talking to. Okay. with all that, let's now continue with the narrative. Look at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This is the part I like about verses 31 to 40. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's simple. It's the simple part. Why? Because this is about believers, right? It's the simple part is about believers. It's the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Again, you believe in Christ. The, the, The design is to continue in his word so that you become a student of his. You're a believer already, but then you become a student. Then the truth opens up your heart your mind is renewed by the truth of the word of god and you get freed up and and so and by the way this is when i say that i am not talking about salvation can you see that why because salvation is not by studying what is salvation by faith right right it's a one shot to say it's believing in christ so when i talk about this i'm talking about believers who continue in his Word. And and we're told about that. Like and it is so freeing. I don't know about you, but when we were going through last Sunday, the or two Sundays ago, the, the difference between sin and sins, and we were in Romans six, and we read how the believer in Christ has died to sin, and that and that we've been separated from sin by the cross, and now we're the we are part of the new man, and that as Paul would say, it's no longer us who sin because That We've realized by the word that's freed us that is sin in the flesh that is is the enemy. That is a new me, so to speak, who's in Christ. That's tremendously freeing. How do you get free in that sense? By hearing the word of God and believing it and holding on to it and applying it to situations in your life, like situations when you sin and then all of a sudden there's this voice i guess you could call inside of you that wants to tell you you're not a good christian you just did that it's even worse for a pastor by the way because it's like not only you're not a good christian but you're a terrible pastor you should never get up there and preach again after committing that sin by the way (laughs) say it would like nothing better than to have every pastor who sins stop preaching because there wouldn't be any preaching right so but so that you got to be freed up by the word of god Not just at salvation, but after that. Now, in this part of of our passage, there's that word disciples. And here it's a simple, simple concept. Disciples are students. That's really what the word means. Disciples are students. Now, how does it get complicated? Well, it gets complicated because now we find out that there are fake disciples. There are false disciples. There are even disciples like like. Like Judas who eventually you know, betray him there are disciples who say we're not believing in you anymore I mean you go on and on in the Gospel of John and you see these different situations they're all called disciples but that's complicated the simplicity is disciples are students of the Lord by the way a disciple does not equal a saint disciple and believer are two different things we're confused about that today in the church people say that um that you know we're followers of Jesus well okay i mean i, I get it on a on a like, a like a basic level people say it that way but i got a question for you how can you be a follower of Jesus in the sense in which the people in the gospels were when Jesus is in heaven you see you see a disciple in that time was somebody who who followed a man as his as a as his teacher you were a student and you emulated the life of what the teacher was saying and doing at that time we're in a totally different place as the church you know our our teacher really is the holy spirit who dwells our hearts right so it's different so disciple is not the same thing as saint not the same thing as believer you can be a believer and not be a disciple and you're not going to hell you can be a disciple, you could have been a disciple, and not be a believer, and go to hell, to make it real simple. Something interesting that um, I noticed, you know, there, there are these co- things called concordances. A lot of you have been familiar with them, concordances, and basically you, you want to find where a word is used in the Bible. Well, I did a concordance search one day on the word disciple. Disciple, disciples, you know, you have to do the singular and the plural, and, and it's very interesting because this is the word disciples is very prominent in the gospels it's also very prominent in the book of acts and all of a sudden you get to the end of the book of acts and it stops it's never used by the apostle paul in any of the letters to the church isn't that interesting i find stuff like that interesting that's saying something why because we're not called disciples we're called saints and 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 it's a much bigger thing than a disciple who followed Jesus on earth. You see, disciples were around, and that word was used from people that followed Jesus, followed John, and yes, followed Paul when they were on earth. But we're saints. We're heavenly people, right? Our, Jesus is in heaven, we're waiting for him to come back. A saint carries with it so much more than who a disciple was when Jesus walks the earth. We're in union with Christ. We've been adopted. We have the spirit now. We've already been freed from our flesh and so forth. So many, many things. If you if you if you run out of things, you can go to our website and there's a list of 50 of them. And and that's just scratching the surface of all who we are as saints in Christ. And yet there is something in common with what John is writing here in chapter eight, verses thirty one and thirty two. We believe. And then we, we have the opportunity, the invitation to continue in his word. And that's what it means to be a disciple. See, believers can still be disciples in that sense because we can still be students. OK, and then we learn the truth. The truth makes us free. In other words, saints today, you and I are still called to continue in Christ's word, aren't we? This is pretty why you're here today. To continue in Christ's word, right? So that's pretty obvious. Look at Colossians chapter three, verse 16. Colossians is it's our instructions. You see, the, the epistles are our instructions telling us about our life. There are so many, many, many things that if, if a person stops learning about who Jesus is in the Gospels, learning about what the cross is all about, in the, you stop at the Gospels, you miss about 98% of what the truth is, by the way. All right. Colossians it's all about who Christ is. And there are things that are said in Colossians that really aren't said anywhere else. So if you think, ah, you know, I can skip that. You just skipped a mountain of truth about Jesus Christ, for example. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's how we continue in Christ's word. We let it richly dwell within us. We can do that now, especially because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. What a powerful combination. We have the completed canon of scripture. We, we have this, the, the things that call mysteries that were never revealed until Paul wrote about them. We have them. So there's a richness of the word itself. We, it can come into our hearts, and when it comes into our hearts, it's met by the Holy Spirit. Wow! I mean, that's some that is that is such more much so much richer dwelling in Christ's Word than was available at the time Jesus walked on Earth. And you see, the, the, that means that you know when you're talking about believers, when Jesus is talking about believers in the Gospel of John, again, that's the simple part my yoke is easy my burden is light that's for believers they speaking of believers there is a definite freedom that comes from understanding the word of god certainly we know that in terms of what god has accomplished for us there's incredible freedom the moment we believe in christ because we are entered into the death of christ his burial and his resurrection so as romans tells us we're freed from the bondage of sin the moment we believe, there's nothing we have to do. We're freed from the bondage of the law. The moment we're saved, there's nothing that we have to do. And yet, the freedom continues. There are other ways in which we're freed up that are not, that are, that are, what they actually are, are drawing from the truth of who God has made us to be, so that in our lives and in our hearts, we continue to be freed up from things. You know, like worries, right? how do we how do we deal with worries well you you know you can believe me the world will have a lot of things to say about that you know they'll tell you that well what you should do is imagine all these worries going away and visualizing them not being there anymore or writing them all and putting them in a balloon and popping the balloon right things like that right that's not how you deal with worry no what do how you deal with worry you realize that that you, that you can take all your worries and throw them on the shoulders of the Lord and that not a balloon, but the shoulders of the Lord. He says, do not worry. There's no reason to worry. He says, how about fears? Right. You have a lot of fears this morning. How do you get rid of the fears? Simply, you understand that perfect love casts out fear. So anytime you're about to fear, instead, understand that you have a father who's all powerful, who loves you, who's going to watch over you. That's how you get rid of fear. So we continue to get freed up. But how? By the truth that's in God's word and we take it and we believe it again and we use it. An- another time, because, you know, as you go through life, you're going to have new worries. You know, I'm not going to personalize it too much, but believe me, I have worries today that I didn't have five years ago. So do you. And so it's and so some mental gymnastics that the world wants you to do is not going to really fit anymore when you get a new one but God's solutions fit all of time and 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 how do we get God's solutions you know, again it's not on a mountaintop it's not to find some guru or yogi or whatever not to meditate no we just go to the word of God but the trick is is to be having the word of God dwell in you richly so that you're not you know man I think there's something here oh. Oh, what's this book, Chronicles? I've never I didn't read that. Let me see. Uh, I think is something about Romans. I mean, no, it's not that all the time you're worrying and afraid. That's not going to work. What's what is going to work? Having it in your heart, having it dwell richly in you. How do you get that? That part is not magic, right? You get that because you have. Like Jesus, you understand that the word of God is more necessary to you than your daily food. That's desire to want it. And, and, and you organize your life in such a way that, hey, you're here today. You know, There's plenty of people who think of Sunday in a totally different way today. But then that time when you can have your hearts refreshed and your minds renewed and you're challenged to how to live according to who you are. That's how you get it. You let the word of God richly dwell within you. And it frees you up. Christ continues to set the saints free. He sent us free on the cross. He wants to set you free today. He wants to set you free from the bondage of. of I, I mentioned this a lot. And, and, and it's something that, that I think is relevant. And it's called a bucket list. A bucket list. You know, what a, everybody knows what a bucket list right? It is now by these days. Right. You go through your life and you stop one day and you say, what are all the things I don't have that I want? And you and you pile them up in some bucket and you think that's enjoyable and it's going to make your life better. But really, if you think about it, if you have a bucket of things that you don't have and you look at that bucket every day, guess what happens? You become a slave the things that are in that bucket you ever think about it that way maybe you haven't well think about it that way (laughs) because god doesn't want you to have that kind of a bucket list he wants you to have the 50 things that say who you are in christ he wants you to have that list and he wants you to go through that every day and he wants you to realize what he's already given you that you don't have to seek for you don't have to strive for you don't have to beat somebody else out for right you don't have to cheat for They're all given. That's grace. Right. Grace is freely given to without concern of merit. You don't have to become the CEO of a company to get every spiritual blessing that's in Christ Jesus. I think a lot of them don't know at all about the spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason I say this, I don't know whether they're believers or not, but, you know. To become a chief executive officer, and I'm not putting them down, and I, I know there's people who are CEOs that are great Christians, okay? But, but it's really hard because you've organized your life for what purpose? It's not to understand and know Christ. It's to build a business and make lots of money. So that's hard. Jesus said you can't have, you know, you can't be the slave of two masters, right? So that's not how you, that's not how you get success and happy in life. Christ, though, continues to set us free every day in our lives. Just one passage. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1. Galatians is Paul's rallying cry. The stake he puts in the ground concerning the defense of the truth of justification by faith. By believing in Christ, you are justified. But not only that, that the whole life after that is by means of faith. Like, like he says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I, and I no longer live. And yet I, I do live, but not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by Faith. So not only is faith for salvation, it's for living. You see that? So it's so there's freedom in salvation and there's freedom in living. He's, let's see which one he's talking about. Galatians chapter five, verse one. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to yoke of slavery. Let me say that again. It was for freedom. That Christ set us free. In other words, he set us free so that we would be free. And but then, then keep standing firm. Apparently, the freedom he's talking about here is something that we stand firm about, that we don't let it slip away, that we don't let the chains come back on our arms, spiritually speaking. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the slavery that he set us free from at the cross was the slavery to sin and death. We're never going to be under those yokes again. OK, though, in Romans 8, two it says the, the, the governing power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already set you free from the governing power of sin and death. He set us free and yet there's a freedom that he wants us to remain in. And, and, and we're starting to look at in our daily scriptures, the, the, the book, the letter of the Galatians and the freedom that he's talking about here in the context is the freedom from the law, the law. Right. So what he's saying is, is you can be you can be a believer in Christ and yet you can fall from grace and put yourself under law. And that's that is a, another yoke of slavery. Only now you put it on yourself because God removed it. In other words by, the, by again how do you how do you how do you live in that freedom well yes you've been enabled to by the power of, of the cross and the power of the spirit and now you are still enabled to but you have to make the decision that you're not going to allow the slavery the the bondage of the law in that setting but you can fill in the blank the bondage of worry the bondage of greed the bondage of fear the bondage of false expectations the bondage of relationships that aren't working and so forth you see that's those can be yokes as well it's not going to send you to hell but it's certainly not going to allow you to live that life more abundant either that the lord has for you okay so all of that comes out of those first two verses in today's passage you go back now go back to john chapter 8 verse 31 Remember, I said that's how I that's I wish today's message was only those two verses, because then I can give you the meaning. In fact, it just did. Right. But then it goes on and we've got to talk a little bit, not too much, by the way, about what happens after that. Okay, John, chapter eight, verses thirty one, thirty two. Again, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And that's still true for us today. However, then we have the rest of the passage today. We read from verse thirty three to verse forty here, but it goes on all the way to verse forty nine. Is the complicated part. It's complicated. I mean, I mean, take a look at it. Look at John 8, 33. We'll just read up to verse 40, because that's that's the message that we're taking in today. He's just said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they answered him. Great. Let's now, please, let's have a session where you teach us more of the word so that we can become free in all the senses you're talking about, Lord. Is that what the Jewish people in this audience told him that day, though? Yeah. Not at all. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Wow. You know, it, it, it's as if you have somebody who is practicing a religion, not as if you're somebody who's practicing a religion. And they're so focused on the material aspects of that religion. And you come to them and you say, there's a great freedom that simply comes by believing in Jesus Christ and and learning his word. And they just throw right back at you their religion. You know, how can you say that? Right. That's what they're doing. They're saying, listen, we're, we're not interested in what you have to say. We're Abraham's descendants. Don't you know who we are? You know. Don't you know who we are? I mean, when I was growing up, I used to literally have my, my uncle was a priest and he was like, quote, in with the bishop, whatever that was. I used to have people to come to me and they say, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm not that good a Catholic, but I'm going to hang on to your coattails because, you know, you're somebody, your family is somebody, you know, we're Abraham's descendants. Why? Well, I don't know, because my gene pool goes all the way back. My father's 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 father's, father's, father's father was Abraham. I used to say I had a mother in law who claimed that her descendants go back to a king of France. And I'm like, big deal. <laughs> you know, that, that king was dead 500 years ago, right? In other words, that doesn't matter as a Christian. They were stuck on that. They actually thought that they had all the freedom they needed because of birth, because of who their daddy was. No, that's certainly not true. If, again, the very beginning of the Gospel of John, right? <laughs> not by blood, not by the will of man, right? But by the birth from God, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Conflict. Well, you know, it, again, if, 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 if there had been, if that audience had been full of belief, this never would have happened. Jesus never would have had to stop and say all the things he now has to say. But because he's in the presence of unbelief, what could have been stops, and he has to deal with that instead verse 34 Jesus answered them truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That's a powerful statement if, if you were if you were in the audience and you had an ounce of humility, that would that would stop you in your tracks, wouldn't it? Everyone who commits sin. I mean, right at the beginning of chapter 8, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Why did he say that? Because nobody's able to cast a stone once they hear that. Wait a minute, I'm the slave of sin. That should have made him think I'm Abraham's descendant, and yet I'm still a slave. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. This is like a truism like, uh, like a, a proverb, so to speak. I mean, it, it's true that if you have a slave and he's in the household for a while, he's not going to be there forever, and most likely because he could be sold and so forth. However, the son has a claim to that house because he's a member of the family. So, verse 36, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And then he has to address the issue that they're raising. I know you're Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. And again, how many times have we heard him have to say that? Now, yes, part of it is that repetition is important, but a greater part of it is, is because he's continuing to face people who refuse to believe that. And it, and it go, makes them go in directions that are hostile to him and actually hostile to themselves. You will die in your sins unless you change. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. He was with his father from eternity in heaven. He's come down here sent by the father to say these things. I say these things. I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, listen to this. You also do the things which you heard from your father. This is a fascinating verse because. He he has to cut it off again. He has to cut off something that's marvelous to deal with something that's terrible. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. If that were a group of believers, what would happen? He would start to say what those things were, right? He can't do that with these people. And instead, he says something that's so sad and so sinister. You also do the things that you heard from your father. Now, we're not going to get there today, but their father turns out to be the devil. Okay. Okay. But you see that jesus was jesus god the father laid these things out so that that god was jesus would see these things from the father he would speak the things with the people and then they would hear those things and do those things but it stopped they never heard the things jesus had to say in that sense why because they were listening to their father the devil and they did those things instead that's what jesus is actually facing When he's in this facing with these with these Jewish people, unbelievers, by the way. Thirty nine. Now, again, you might have hoped that. That they would have taken taken an inventory of their lives when he said, you're a slave of sin and you want to kill me. And, you know, I have my father and you have yours. And then they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. They're 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 like stuck you ever have a person like that you're preaching the gospel to them but they're stuck on something else they're stuck on oh i don't know why do good things happen to bad people or why do bad things happen they're stuck on it no matter what you say they're stuck on that or you know as there how, how about the people in the philippines that have never heard the gospel they're in a jungle you know they're stuck they're stuck on the idea of, no 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 abraham's our father but then so jesus even attacks that he says if you are abraham's children Do the deeds of Abraham. He's right back. He's saying, listen, it's about what you're doing that tells you who your father is. You're not you're not you're not the the children of Abraham because you're not doing the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. What he's saying, "You, you can't be a child of Abraham. Because you know what Abraham did? He did the will of my father. He heard and was obedient. Right? You're not. Right? So, again, though, the tragedy here is that we get two verses that lay things out magnificently about God's desire in his heart for everybody to believe and to grow in the truth. But then we have the rest. Actually, from we're gonna, we, we could go all the way to verse 49 and see more of this. That is complicated by something. You see, verses 30 to 32. Wait a minute. What am I doing? Oh, yeah. Verses 30. I'll get back to verses 30. Verses 33 to 49 deal with complications and trouble that unbelief generates. Unbelief generates all kinds of complications and trouble. My mom just died. Christians, this is why I love I love being with us, okay? What happens when a person dies and, and Christians are around, right? They're supportive, they're loving, they want to help you bring in memory, good memories of your mom and all of that, right? What happens when members of your family are, are not believers in Christ? Something very different. At best, <laughs> I wish it was just morning. <laughs> yeah, Why? Because unbelief causes complications in life. All kinds of them. We're gonna see all the trouble, all the trouble that this this one thing unbelief generates. But again, verses 30 to 32, simple. Simple. Why? Belief. Belief is a simplifier. The simplicity of devotion to Christ. You know, you, you have an area of temptation and And you seem like you're you're almost falling for it. And why? Because you're listening to all unbelief inside you. You're listening to the flesh, to the lies of the world. It's all unbelief. It's got nothing to do with God. But the minute you stand up and you say, wait a minute, the word of God is clear about this. I'm simply going to believe it. Poof. The complexity goes away. Belief is simplifying. On the other hand, verses 33 to 39 are complicated. Why? Unbelief. See, I'm trying to make this simple because I'm talking to believers. That's that's what we're dealing with. Okay? That's what Jesus is dealing with. When I talked about things having to like go around and round as things accelerate um, in intensity and mostly in hatred and conflict. This is why it's unbelief that's causing him to have to go around and round the same ground again and again and again. It's unbelief that does that. It's unbelief where, like I said this morning, it seems like he's teaching something and all of a sudden there's a barrier and you can't get to the next thing. Why? Unbelief that he's facing. That's why. Complicated. And by the way, um, it's not, you know, it's it's a particular belief here, unfortunately. It's not just belief. It's Jewish unbelief. It's Jewish unbelief. I'm not picking on the Jewish people. Believe me. What I am saying, though, is that that Jesus came for the Jewish people and, and the indictment of the human race actually falls on the fact that these people that were chosen and had the old Testament rejected him. Okay. So there's something peculiarly sinister, if I could put it that way or odd or depraved about the Jewish unbelief at that time, at that time, Jewish unbelief in the days of Christ's public ministry. That's what Jesus is dealing with, obviously. The darkness and the blindness of unbelief that prevented them from seeing who Jesus is. Jesus, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not remain in darkness. Unbelief, darkness, blindness. And worse than that, unbelief caused all those horrible, nightmarish things that Jesus is definitely not to come spewing out of their mouth all the things they said, you shocked You're shocked, as a as a believer, that they would ever say this about him. You know, at, at one point you say they hated me without a cause. They called him. Uh, they said that he was a Samaritan, an illegitimate child. He was demon possessed, a lawbreaker, a blasphemer. This is Jesus that we're talking about. How can things get that bad? Unbelief. Look at John chapter nine, verse thirty-eight. this these are words from a man that was born blind and jesus healed so that he could see and he said lord i believe and he worshiped him simplicity isn't it Belief leads to worship. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see like this man may see and that those who see may become blind. That's a that's a harsh thing. That's a. There are those who see who become blind. And then verse 40, then they, 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 they kind of they step up and say, hey, we are the ones? So they don't say that. But those are the Pharisees who were with Jesus, heard these things and said to him. We're not blind, too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. That was, see, their sin was them thinking that they saw all they had to see and they didn't have to see anything about Jesus. Their sin remains. If you continue that way, you will die in your sin. <clears throat> so we have this horrible. Unbelief among the Jewish people that were supposed to welcome Jesus as their king. Horrible. The things they said about him, ultimately, the, that, that unbelief would, would generate and mushroom into the crowds that wanted him to be crucified and into his crucifixion. And yet, the father took all of that, all of the complexity and horror and nightmare and the production of unbelief, he took all of it on this blind unbelief and he made it all serve his amazing plan to save the world and glorify his son and that's something that only god can do look at acts chapter 2 verse 22. keep in mind what we're studying about the the book of Isaiah, by the way, that that God shows mercy to all. Right. That there that he didn't stop and say, this is it for the Jewish people. He says, no, you know what? That same Abraham. Right. I made promises to that man. I am going to fulfill them. Their descendants will be in the kingdom. That's a remarkable thing to think about. What a God we have that has that kind of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Today, we have seen all the problems and horrors and complications of unbelief. But the remedy is totally simple. This is the good news. It's simple, right? It's what Jesus told Thomas. When he showed him his hands and his side, Thomas says, unless I see his hands in his side, I simply will not believe. So Jesus goes through, walks through a door and says, Hey, reach your finger here. See my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And then what did he say after that? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's so simple. It's so simple. And yet, think about it. Think about all of the complications. And unbelief through in his path. when it was so simple when all they really had to do. Ultimately, all anybody has to do now is not literally, but reach in and see the hand, see the love that Jesus had for you and dying on the cross for you. That's all you got to do and believe it and you'll have eternal life and the complicated becomes simple. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you today for opening our eyes to a, to a factor in the gospel of John that sometimes makes it very difficult to pour through. And it's got nothing to do with you or your son or the marvelous things that the son, your son said and did. It has to do with the people who refuse to believe. And we know, Father, that we can't stick our noses up because we had a whole portion of our lives when we were the same way. We know that everybody is born in sin everybody starts out life in unbelief. and so we just thank you for your grace and mercy on all of us. And Father this morning we pray too that that those who we would preach the gospel to in the coming days and weeks and months that among them too, Father, you would provide that conviction of the Holy Spirit and enable them to do as Thomas did, which is to really consider what Christ did for them on the cross, dying for their sins, consider the resurrection body of Christ, that you raised him from the dead and believe. And have eternal life. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty, we're just about done. Just remember, um, Bible study every Thursday at 6 30 both here um, and on on Skype on the internet. Last week we were in, in Isaiah forty-four, and uh, it turned into Romans eight. These are the kind of things that happen in Bible study. You know, you might say, "Oh, Isaiah sixty-six chapters. When are we going to be done?" Well, maybe maybe that doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe again, maybe it's not just linear. Maybe it's, hey, we had a night where we were able to just enjoy Romans eight and all the wonderful things it says about us. That's the kind of thing God does, you know, so. God's the one who really offers all of this. It's so rich. So don't so please try to join us at that time. And again, one more time, let's pre, let's understand the simplicity of the gospel that. All men have fallen short, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Women, too. And so Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross for the sins of the world. All of them. He died on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. So that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will never perish. But at the moment of belief is declared righteous in God's eyes forever and is assured eternal life. That's the truth of the gospel. Simply believe. In Jesus Christ as the God man who died for your sins and was raised again. All right. Father, thank you again for today's um, message. We thank you for every one of us that have gathered here, here in Florida, here on the internet. And we pray, Father, that we would be encouraged by the simplicity of your word and the marvel of it, encouraged to live our lives and the freedom that, that your son bought for us. Encouraged to know that no matter how fierce the unbelief is, that it is that it is a simple matter of somebody hearing the good news, looking at Jesus Christ and living through the faith that you have given them. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.